0: The Politics of Pandemics Episode 1 Early Signs of a Pneumonia Outbreak The date of recording is September 26, 2021. It has been 635 days since the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission in China reported a cluster of cases on New Year's Eve 2019. Since then, there have been 231 million official cases of COVID-19 with 4.7 million dead from the virus and its comorbidities. These official numbers reflect only a fraction of the total devastation this disease has wrought for the past two years. The pandemic has changed life for everyone on this earth in unprecedented ways. Entire industries will never return or will change forever. The virus has done a lot to expose many faults in systems of governments all over the world. While bureaucratic calcification and corruption has always cost money and exacerbated suffering, now more than ever it's costing lives. The untold suffering caused by the disease spread across all walks of life is exacerbated by governments often choosing to protect special interests over lives or even simply acting too late. In some countries, COVID 19 and its associated issues have led to the collapse of their governments and may likely lead to more when this pandemic is over. The fault does not lie purely at the top. Disinformation campaigns have shaped public policy in ways that have blindsided sensible policymakers as they watch thousands head to the streets to deny the deadliness of the virus and advocate against policies meant to save their lives. Or worse, The leaders have become influenced by the disinformation themselves. This pandemic has created many celebrities and millionaires, agents of chaos who built a following on lies and fake cures, and wolves' death count may rival those of the worst wartime despots. These factors are not unique to the COVID-19 pandemic. History is full of fallen states brought down with the help of disease and malaise, Charlatans have always existed with every plague, looking to take advantage of the suffering and the ignorant. Civilization has always been shaped by disease and pandemics. Think of the Black Death changing the societal makeup of Europe, the genocide of the Americas helped by the Europeans importing smallpox. If history tells us anything, it's that we're not special in how we're currently dealing with COVID-19. Even if we have modern innovations like airplanes and social media speeding up the way we spread both the virus and disinformation, we're still falling into patterns that have existed since the dawn of civilization. Still, we don't know what the future holds. Even 632 days after the declaration, many countries are still struggling with overflowing hospitals and flooded crematoriums. Only about a third of the world is vaccinated, mostly affluent nations able to pay for the vaccine first. Many poor countries still suffer from a lack of access to both good healthcare and vaccines, let alone vaccine hesitancy and sectarian suspicion further lowering vaccination rates. Even in the most vaccinated countries, case numbers are still high, with COVID-19 constantly evolving with new variants threatening to reduce the efficacy of the best vaccines humans can develop. Make no mistake, the pandemic isn't over. But it is still worth looking back at what we have done right and wrong. In a global pandemic, smaller stories can get lost in the noise, and when things change so rapidly, we may forget the decisions that got us to where we are today. So if you'll join me, we'll dissect how different societies have handled the pandemic, and the deeper stories behind individual decisions made in response. I may focus on a country as a whole, or a single individual event that has happened in the middle of the pandemic. I may focus on a policy and its effects, or a product developed, or even the evolution of fake cures and grifts that have popped up since the beginning. If possible, I would also like to focus on the individuals around the world and how this disease has permanently changed their lives. I do not know where this will lead. As I said, when I write this, the pandemic is not over, even if it feels that way in some places. We may learn some things that will help us get out of the pandemic or prepare for the next one, or at least we can hear the stories that we otherwise would not be able to hear. I can only hope I do a good job at it for you to continue listening. So with apologies to my amateurist writing and recording abilities, let's start at the very beginning. As of the writing of this episode, no one can be truly sure about the origins of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Most experts are of the opinion that the virus spread onto humans from another animal species, most likely bats. This is not an opinion shared by everyone, and conspiracy theories abound as to where the virus came from. To be sure, discerning the origins of a virus, if done at all, can be a years-long process. The original SARS outbreak lasted from 2002 to 2004 before disappearing completely and suddenly. But scientists only narrowed down the origins of that outbreak in 2017, to a cave in Yunnan province that was home to a colony of horseshoe bats. Of all the animals that regularly come into contact with humans, bats seem unusually capable of infecting us with new and unusual diseases. Human diseases that likely have their origins in bats include rabies, MERS, the Marburg virus, the Nipah virus, and of course the SARS virus. In fact, the Coronaviridae family makes up the plurality of all the viruses found in bats at about 37%. So not only do bats harbor a myriad of viruses that can easily infect humans, the viruses don't seem to be that lethal to bats. Only the rabies virus and a fewer other viruses have been confirmed to kill bats. Scientists aren't sure why yet. Maybe bats have simply evolved in that way, carrying an ecosystem of diseases while staying relatively healthy themselves. But serving as host to such a large variety of viral vectors means not only can bats carry viruses across large distances. Their bodies also serve as breeding grounds for new species of viruses. This is why bats are more heavily studied as disease vectors than any other wild species. And the institution that is heavily involved in those studies, the institution that helped pinpoint the origin of SARS to that cave in Yunnan, was the Institute of Virology in Wuhan. While not the largest or the most important city in China, the Wuhan metropolitan area in Hubei is still home to 19 million people who call this ancient city in the central place home. The city was once an agricultural hub for most of its life until, like much of the rest of China, it experienced massive industrialization in the 1980s. Steel replaced rice, which attracted car manufacturers, which attracted other industries, and most importantly, people. The region had just 1.4 million people in 1953, and now it has more than 13 times that. And that dramatic growth requires land and food. Lots of it. Development displaces nature, while food is constantly brought into Wuhan to feed its ever-growing population and its burgeoning middle class. This is where wholesale markets like the Huanan Seafood Market come in. Located in a newer part of the city near the center, it is purported to be the largest seafood wholesale market in central China. When reporters visited the place at the start of the Wuhan lockdown, the market was reported to be unsanitary, with livestock placed near dead animals. This is not uncommon in Asian markets. But what is uncommon is that, despite the name of the market, lots of other types of meat are sold here including exotic animals. Called yewei in Chinese, the species as varied as badgers, marmots, porcupines, hares, and dozens of others were sold there, sometimes alive, sometimes slaughtered to feed the growing middle class in Wuhan. For experts who believe the Huanan seafood market is the origin of the virus, this unholy mix of exotic game and unsanitary conditions is the perfect breeding ground for viral variants. While no bats were sold as food here, it's possible that the virus jumped from the bat to an animal that was brought to the market, whereupon poor sanitary conditions encouraged the virus to jump to a human. Not too far from this market sits the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is another institute often mentioned at the center of the SARS-CoV-2 origin story. It is the location of China's first biosafety level 4 lab which is the highest safety level available to laboratories studying the worst diseases known to mankind. Other BSL-4 labs around the world are where you find the villains of human history like Ebola, monkeypox, and the last remains of the smallpox virus. In Wuhan, they focus heavily on the study of bat coronaviruses. As mentioned before. They were the institute involved in pinpointing the origin of the original SARS virus. And in 2012, when three miners in South Yunnan died from a mysterious fatal pneumonia, horseshoe bat feces samples were sent from the cave they were in and from the disease miners to the institute. One of the few strains of coronaviruses found in the samples was eventually named RATG13. And as of 2020, this strain is the closest living relative to the SARS-CoV-2 virus, although both strains still hold significant differences. If I've been a little effusive in the information presented so far, it's because some of the information we have now is not fully confirmed, and some of it may never be fully confirmed. To be clear, the majority of opinion of experts in the field is that the virus jumped naturally from a bat to a human, either directly or through an intermediary animal, and that the lab leak theory is possible but unlikely. This is the position I will take until which time we have strong evidence otherwise. The South China Morning Post reported in March 2020 that the first person to have suffered from COVID-19 may be a 55-year-old man who contracted the virus on November 17. From this one case, the virus seemingly spread to between one and five people every day until about January. The problem is, while this is according to China's official records, authorities may not be completely correct here, and it may not be entirely their fault. A few studies in places like Brazil and France have hinted at cases in November 2019 as well, both in terms of detecting traces of SARS-CoV-2 and antibody tests. 2020 has shown that this globalized world allows a virus to spread across the world incredibly quickly, especially one with so many asymptomatic cases. With so many similar symptoms to other illnesses, it likely was not as obvious that this was a new disease for a while. But remember, if you see an article that the virus has been around before November of 2019, read beyond the headline. Half the time it's just probably a probability estimation of some other survey, but unfortunately it may not be hard evidence as such and it may never be. We may have and we may never be able to confirm it as such. In any case, the Lancet published one of the first studies of COVID 19 sufferers on January 24th, 2020. Of the 41 people of the study, mostly the first cases found in Wuhan, the first person to show symptoms did so on December 1st. The first hospitalizations occurred on the 8th, and over the next few weeks, more hospitalizations trickled in. Many of the cases that were later confirmed to be a normal coronavirus strain were tied to the Huanan seafood market, though not all of them were. And as more and more individual cases started to pour into hospitals, many exhibiting similar symptoms and tied to the seafood market, the local medical authorities began to take notice. The person who is credited by China for discovering SARS-CoV-2 is a pulmonologist named Zhang jiu She is the director of the Department of Respiratory Medicine at Hubei Provincial Hospital of Integrated Chinese and Western Medicine, meaning it was under her care that the first official reports were made around December 27 to the local District Center for Disease Control. For her efforts at the beginning of the pandemic, She was commended by the government and called a national hero, even as the disease she helped identify began to cripple the world around her. But there were other doctors who were quickly realizing something was very wrong and I want to talk about two of them. Dr. Ifen was an ophthalmologist at the Wuhan Central Hospital and she began to see patients with unusual pneumonia symptoms like many of her fellow doctors. One of the lab results she received contains the fateful words "SARS coronavirus" on the report. Terrified as anyone would be, she circled the phrase several times and sent a photo of the report to a fellow doctor. That photo spread around her colleagues and would soon make its way to a doctor Li Wenliang. Now, Doctor Li is a fellow ophthalmologist at the Wuhan Central Hospital. His post was titled 7 Cases of Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome from the Huanan Seafood Market. He posted it on December 30th simply as a private warning to his friends about possible SARS outbreaks in their area, but it was also posted before the government could issue their own official warning. That private warning was leaked to the public, and Dr. Lee along with several others in the group, were summoned by the local police and forced to sign a letter promising to make no further disclosures concerning the disease. Part of the letter states, We solemnly warn you that if you stick to your guns and remain impetinent and continue to engage in illegal activities, you will be punished by law. For his leaked warning, Dr. Lee was branded a rumor monger on state television and threatened with further legal action, but he was allowed to return to work on January 3rd. A week later, he began to cough. As he posted on Weibo on January 31st, I was feverish on January 11th and was hospitalized the next day. Back then, the government still insisted that there was no human-to-human transmission, and said none of the medical staff had been infected. I was just confused. It would come out later that the local Wuhan government was hiding the severity of the disease and not testing anybody for two weeks. Dr. Li would die in the early hours of February 7, 2020 of the virus he tried to warn people of. Unusually for China, his death triggered tributes all over social media of him as a hero and a whistleblower who was treated unfairly by the government. The Chinese government would later rebrand him as a martyr, a title given to doctors who died from COVID-19 while in the line of duty. As for Dr. Ai, she continued to work hard as the situation deteriorated rapidly in Wuhan. Stories she told later to the press included an elderly man staring blankly at the doctor as he gave him the death certificate of his 32-year-old son, or of a father who was too sick to get out of the car outside of the hospital, and by the time Dr. Ai went to get him, he had died. She lost several of her colleagues during that time, including Dr. Lee himself. But even as the medical staff were dying as late as January 16, hospital officials still denied that there was an outbreak. Later, she was profiled a few times by several press outlets, but a crucial interview came when she spoke to Renwu, or People, which is a Chinese magazine and published on March 10, 2020. In it, she gave her first-person account of the scenario in Wuhan. And of her post, which was later shared by Dr. Lee. She was branded the whistle giver due to her quote, that I am not a whistleblower. I am the one that provided the whistle. She also said that, quote, had doctors been notified promptly, this name might never have come. The article was pulled down after three hours of publication, but in a parallel to Dr. Lee's story, The interview was republished all over Chinese social media. It was rewritten using emojis, foreign languages, and even code to circumvent the censors and eventually the article was left up. Sadly, despite the eventual labeling of her as a hero during the pandemic, Dr. I's story also doesn't have a happy ending. She had to undergo cataract surgery several months after the pandemic. At the time, all the eye doctors in her own hospital had died from COVID-19, and she had to perform her surgery at an expensive private hospital. Five months after the surgery, her retina detached and made her nearly blind. She was forced to stop working, and now she claims she can't even hold her baby or walk unassisted and suffers from constant mental breakdowns. cases came in, Wuhan officials knew they could not hide everything. Samples from Wuhan hospitals would confirm to have some form of coronavirus. And on December 30th, a private lab called Vision Medical would confirm that not only was the sample identical to other samples they had received days before, it was also distinct from the original SARS coronavirus. There was a new disease spreading primarily amongst people tied to the Huanan seafood market. The next day, on December 30th, 2019, the Wuhan Municipal Health Commission released a briefing on its website about detecting early signs of a pneumonia outbreak. The report claimed 27 cases in total, 7 serious, 2 recovered, and no deaths so far. The Huanan Seafood Market was closed on New Year's Day 2020 to be disinfected and sanitized. The international community began to report on this new as yet known virus that's causing more and more people from Wuhan to land in the hospital with pneumonia and other mysterious symptoms. The World Health Organization also picked up on this report and issued its first press release that day. But The Chinese government, for its part, began to clamp down internally on unauthorized information regarding the outbreak. Typical of China's pattern of lower officials hiding bad news to avoid looking like failures, the information was treated like state secrets, with further unofficial sequencing of samples disallowed, and doctors being banned from discussing the disease. China had plenty of private labs that could sequence and identify the virus in samples, like Vision Medical mentioned above, but they were explicitly told to stop any further testing of samples. On January 3rd, China's National Health Commission, the nation's top health authority, ordered institutions not to publish any information related to the unknown disease and ordered labs to transfer any samples they had to designated testing institutions or to destroy them. The order did not specify any designated testing institutions. And so, for two weeks in January of 2020, no new cases of coronavirus were reported in China. Of the cases that were reported before January 2nd, all the cases and their close contacts were quarantined and their cases were monitored. At the time, the authorities still refused to confirm that human-to-human transmission was possible despite the evidence that was building up. After ruling out other possible contagions like MERS or the original SARS, Chinese authorities finally confirmed on January 9, 2020, that Wuhan was home to a novel coronavirus, one that the world had not seen before. Initially, the Chinese government was praised for its transparency in contrast to the secrecy they had treated the SARS outbreak 20 years ago, but this would quickly turn out to be premature praise. On that same day, a 61-year-old man who was a regular patron of the Huanan market, was the first person to have reported to have died from COVID-19 and its comorbidities. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. I will set up an email and central location for correspondence and corrections soon. If I can make this podcast work, I would like to hear from you, your story of dealing with this pandemic, and if you have any suggestions for future topics you would like me to look into. A little disclaimer here, I will almost certainly make mistakes or misinterpret facts, so I will in the future set up a way for corrections as well. I apologize for any mistakes I may have made in the preceding episode, and if you can, get yourself and everyone you know vaccinated, wear a mask if you can, and always wash your hands.